Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me, friends. Lord God, I pray that right now, you will work by your word, by your spirit through your word to just fill and enrich, encourage and challenge and convict to change people and to accomplish what only you can do. God, I know what we're going to talk about today is a familiar message. God, please, oh please, don't let our hearts be so hard that the familiar would feel old. And please, Lord, don't let our sin be so strong that we would not be put in awe of your great, glorious gift of your Son. Save souls. Encourage believers. Be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Christmas is a sweet celebration of God and God's promises fulfilled. So for one last time in our series, this is sermon number 10 in a Christmas series. We started in October, which you can decide whether that was a wise move or not, but uh, we did. I want to invite you to hear the story of the Bible. Can you sit through the story of the Bible one more time? So the story is the story of God. It's the story of promises fulfilled. It's the story of Jesus So today, like a person gazing at a mural painted on a large wall, we're going to step back and try to take in the grandeur of what God has done. We begin before there was time. Before God ever created, the persons of the Godhead agreed together to redeem a people for the glory of God. Each person in the Trinity, the one true God, would play a role. God the Father elects a people to salvation and sends his Son to redeem them. God the Son willingly chooses to be sent and to accomplish the redemption of those who were elected to salvation by the Father. And the Son will receive the elect as a reward for his faithfulness. God the Holy Spirit would aid the Son in his mission, apply redemption to the elect, and seal the people of God to the Lord for eternity. And this is something that we call the covenant of redemption, or for, again, you Latin nerds, you only get one last shot at this. What's this one called? The Pactum Salutis. Amen. In the beginning, 
God created everything that there is. And of all the things that God made, mankind was the highest of God's creation. God made a covenant of works with the first man, Adam. If Adam would obey God's command, Adam and his descendants would live forever with God. But if Adam disobeyed God, he and his offspring would be guilty of sin and subject to death. Of course, Adam failed. He brought death and sorrow into the human race. But God would not allow the rebellion of Adam to prevent him from accomplishing his eternal plan of redemption. So though God could have killed Adam instantly for his sin, God chose to preserve Adam and allow him to have a family. And by the way, just let's think about that for a second. Aren't you glad God did that? You know that God has the right to squash you and me the moment we first fail him, right? How old would you have made it to be? Regarding, you know, not even thinking about the doctrine of original sin, I think I'd have been squashed pretty young, don't you? God is gracious, friends. And if you're breathing today, God has been merciful to you. Well, in God's promising that mankind would continue, in God's pronouncing of curses on the devil who brought temptation into the garden, God gave us the first hint that he intended to send someone into the world to carry out his promise of a gracious redemption. God said to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, Genesis 3.15. Adam, the first man, serves as the representative head of all mankind. Because Adam failed, we failed. Because Adam earned the judgment of God, we're all under the judgment of God. Because Adam corrupted his own nature, all who are descended from Adam inherit Adam's corrupt nature, and we all willingly sin against God. And because of that, nobody who's descended from Adam can fulfill the covenant of works and behave well enough to impress, please God, work their way into the favor of God. So our only hope is the hint of grace that God gave when he promised that someone would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Well, Adam and his wife had a family and God carried forward his promise to send a redeemer, a rescuer, a chosen one. Though the family had actually many sons and daughters by the time it was all done, God made it clear that one particular line would carry the promise. And none of them carried the promise because of their own goodness. Eventually, mankind became so corrupt on the earth that God chose to wipe out every breathing creature with a catastrophic global flood. In order to keep the promise alive, God chose a man, Noah, and protected his family in the ark. After the flood, God covenanted with all creatures that he would never again send a flood to destroy the world. This is God making a unilateral gracious promise that he would preserve creation. He would keep the earth spinning until the day when God would finally perfectly fulfill his covenant of redemption. Well, after the flood... God commanded humanity to spread out over all the globe and display God's glory. But mankind refused. They gathered at Babel. They attempted to build a tower to heaven. That rebellion could have earned another flood, but God had already promised he wouldn't do that. Instead, God gave the people different languages. He created the variety of the nations that we see all over the world today. 
And one might have wondered which of those many nations would carry forward the promise of God to send the promised one. And God chose a man named Abram. Later, his name would be Abraham. He would carry the promise. And God made a covenant with Abraham that really has two sides to it. From a this-worldly perspective, God's covenant with Abraham looked like a covenant of works. God would set Abraham and his family up in the promised land, and he would give to them blessing and offspring, the land, and dominion over that land. And Abraham, for his part, was to mark his sons through circumcision. And any refusal to obey that command of God would result in the rebellious individual being cut off from the people of God. So that part of the covenant is obey and survive, disobey and be judged. But God also made a promise to Abraham that he would bless all nations, all the nations of the world through a descendant of Abraham's, a singular descendant of Abraham's. Genesis twenty-two eighteen says to us, in your offspring, one offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be, be blessed. That's God promising that he's going to bring the chosen one, the rescuer, the anointed one, through Abraham's family tree. And God's going to fulfill that promise no matter what Abraham and his followers did, a unilateral grace-based promise. Well, for four centuries, the descendants of Abraham's family lived away from the promised land in the land of Egypt. But once the family had grown into a nation of millions God kept the promise to Abraham and he led the nation up out of their Egyptian slavery. God met with the nation at Mount Sinai and he entered into a covenant with them as a nation. God would give the nation laws to follow. And if the nation obeyed those laws, they would be blessed. But if they disobeyed those laws, they would be cursed. Through Moses, the people agreed to the terms of that covenant and they moved on. The covenant at Sinai included a system of offerings and and sacrifices. The lives of innocent animals would be taken so that the nation could survive. Those sacrifices hinted to the nation that something better than animals would have to come along in order to save them from their guilt and from their sin. The blood reminded the people that our rebellion against God is serious and it earns death. The constant repetition of the offerings day after day after day after day reminds us that there is nothing we can do on our own to cover our own sin. And the laws that God gave the nation of Israel were designed to preserve the people. Food laws, dress codes, even marriage restrictions were designed to make it so that the line of promise would not be lost in the world. The moral standards of perfection reminded the people that they needed the grace of God if they were ever going to be under his favor. Bottom line, the law, which is a good thing, the law is good, it's righteous, it shows us the character of God. The law showed the people that they needed God. They needed God to send that promised rescuer into the world where they were in deep, deep trouble. Eventually, the nation entered into the promised land. But the people were not at all consistent at keeping God's laws. Sometimes they obeyed and things went well. Sometimes they disobeyed and they faced the judgment of God. When they cried out for a king, as an example, they showed that they did not want to be led by God. But God made a covenant with David, the nation's second king. 
God promised that one of David's descendants would be king forever. He would rule forever. And that promise helps us to see that the rescuer God would send would somehow be descended from David. He would be a king not over just Israel, but over the whole world. And then comes the rest of the Old Testament. We watch as the nation continues to fight against God. The prophets warned the people of the danger that they face for violating the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. But none of those warnings stopped the people from turning away from God to the worship of idols and to embracing self-centered morality, immorality. They rebelled against God because they thought they knew better than God. They thought they were smarter than God. They thought they somehow knew what was okay. It's just never true for us, folks. Most of the nation was conquered by the Assyrian Empire and generally lost to history, but the tribe of Judah, the southern tribes, the tribe from which David's family descended, it was what was left. And even that tribe was threatened by, eventually it was taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The kingly line of David all of a sudden no longer had a man enthroned. And everything looked lost. Even when God brought the nation back from Babylon into the land, and even when he let them build, rebuild a, a littler version of the temple under the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah and those guys, things in the nation still looked wrong. It seemed like the promise of God was not going to be fulfilled. But around the time that the people of Judah went captive, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. And God promised that a day would come when he would make a new covenant with his people. And this new covenant would not be like the old works-based covenant that the people broke. The new covenant is going to bring together the people of God from all over the world. It's going to change their hearts. It's going to bring to them actual forever forgiveness for their sins. Unlike the covenant that God made with Abraham, where not every descendant knew God, all of the people in the new covenant would truly know the Lord. Well, even though God made that promise of hope, the people in the Old Testament, they didn't experience it. They didn't see it. After the people returned to the land from their exile in Babylon, after, after God's prophets led the people to rebuild the temple, all that stuff, God allowed four centuries to pass without speaking to the people through the prophets. Silence from God rang over the land. Would God's promise come to pass? Had God's promise failed? If God doesn't bring the promised one into the world, all is lost. It's not just that the nation of Israel is lost. It's not just that Judah is lost. All of humanity is lost. All of us are represented before God by Adam's failure. Somebody's got to fix that. And it can't be us. Thanks be to God. He always, and I mean always, keeps his promises. God did not 
leave humanity alone to die in our sin. God did not leave us alone to struggle against the unbearable weight of a covenant of works. God would bring to us a redemption through the promised new covenant, the covenant of grace. And Christmas is the day that we celebrate that God sent the promised one into the world in just the right way at just the right time. Because the one God promised would rescue the world, the one that would stomp the head of the devil, has to be descended from Eve, the woman in the garden. Somehow he is connected to genuinely human as a human real man, but not descended through Adam in such a way that he would be corrupted by Adam's sin. You guys read earlier this morning Galatians 4, 4, and 5, which says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So friends, God did it. At Christmas, we celebrate how? So let's look at the coming of the promised one by looking at Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. If you've got a paper Bible, you can stick your fingers in both places. If you've got a phone, good luck. Matthew 1, verse 1. By the way, I have to tell you right now that may be the longest introduction to any sermon I've ever done, but bless your hearts for sitting through it. Y'all okay? Amen. Merry Christmas. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, lets us know that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, and of David. He's going to be the offspring of Abraham through whom the world will be blessed. And Jesus is the son of David who will be king over the world forever. Then Matthew 1.18 begins to tell us the story. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Get ready to turn to Luke 1. Matthew calls Jesus here the Christ. The word Christ is a word that means anointed one. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You guys know that, right? Christ is a title. Jesus is the one who is promised by God, anointed by God. The king, the rescuer, the high priest. He is what God's been saying he's going to do all along. Now, before we pick up Matthew telling the story, I want us to look in Luke chapter 1 so we can see what happened with Mary, the mother of Jesus, to bring all this about. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, first of all. In the sixth month, the, ga- the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Big deal. That's a big deal. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what, what sort of greeting this might be. Mary, betrothed to a man named Joseph, the future mother of Jesus, gets a visit from an angel. The angel lets her know that she's going to be used by God in a mighty way. Mary wonders at the words of the angel, which that's not really a surprise because I think you would be pretty surprised too, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Now, verse 30 goes on. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There it is again. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. You see the promise? Mary the virgin will be given a child by the Spirit of God. And this child is going to be called the Son of God. He's going to reign on David's throne. He will rule the world forever. The angel in one little moment is telling Mary that she's going to give birth to the true fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. That means, of course, that he will be the fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham. That means, of course, that he will be the fulfillment of the promise God made in the Garden of Eden to send a rescuer into the world. Mary has what we might call logistical questions, but she believes She's willing to be an instrument in the hand of God to bring about the fulfillment of God's great glorious promises. Later, Mary is going to sing for joy over the faithfulness of God and hear the covenant language in it. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Verses 54 and 55. Now, for Joseph, back in Matthew 1, for Joseph... The idea that Mary is going to be the mother of God's promised one, that's a little more difficult to understand the first time he hears about it. Back to Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We just read about that. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, there it is again, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived as her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At first, Joseph feared that Mary had simply been an unfaithful fiancé. But an angel from God comforted him and let him know that the child Mary was carrying was conceived not by man, but by the power of Almighty God. This child is the Son of God. This child will be the Savior, the one bringing God's promised forgiveness to all who trust in Him, like the New Covenant promises. He will be truly man, but not corrupted by Adam's sin. Notice also that the angel calls Joseph Son of David. Jesus is going to be the Son of David who rules the world forever as the king over all kings. And the name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Jesus is going to bring to his people the forgiveness the new covenant has promised. Verse 22 and following then says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. 
Matthew tells us this entire unfolding miracle reminds us of the words of prophecy that we see in Isaiah chapter 7. That prophecy in Isaiah promises that a child's going to be born and would symbolically help the people know that God was still with them. But the perfect fulfillment of the prophecy includes a true virgin giving birth to the Son of Almighty God so that God would quite literally be with His people. And then, doesn't it feel almost anticlimactic how Matthew ends this chapter? Matthew just lets us know, Joseph marries Mary, they don't come together till the baby's born, and when the child is born, he names him Jesus, just like he was told to do. Not many details. You could not make a very good play out of this, which maybe that should tell you something, by the way. But if you want a little more detail about the night of the Savior's birth, it's in Luke chapter 2. I want to take a peek at Luke chapter 2 real quick. This will be about all we get to. I just want you to hear it one more time. And as I read this to you, I want you to listen to and take note of the words that, that hint to us that God is fulfilling his covenant promises, those covenants we've been studying for three months now. Luke 2, starting at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. All right, that's all we're going to read. Dear friends, God has done what he promised. You able to believe that? We, like the shepherds, should glorify And praise God for what we've heard. God promised Jeremiah in the Old Testament that a new covenant would come. And in that new covenant, all the the people who participate, 
every member of the new covenant will know God and will find forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus has brought, inaugurated, accomplished that new covenant, the covenant of grace. God promised that a son of King David would come into the world. He would reign forever. He would rule forever. And the baby born on Christmas Day, Jesus, son of David, son of God, is reigning right now on the throne of heaven. And Jesus is going to return and he's going to reign over this world forever. And let me tell y'all something. He is a good king. He is a mighty king. He is an irresistible king. He is our king. In the covenant at Sinai, God promised the people life for obedience. He commanded the implementation of the sacrificial system. Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He perfectly obeyed. And He has come and He has given up His life. He shed His own blood to do away with the need for sacrifices. There is no longer any sacrifice that will bring anybody any favor from God. Jesus did it all once for all time. In the covenant with Abraham, God promised blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless the world. All who come to Jesus are adopted into the family of Abraham and they are the recipients of God's promise. Jesus will rule the entire world, the entire universe as a new promised land. And Jesus has dominion as king forever. He fulfills everything God has ever promised. God promised Noah that he would not destroy the world until all of his promises came to pass. As with the ark, everyone who runs to Jesus Christ for refuge will live. And Jesus will sustain this world until his mission to save all that God sent him to save is accomplished. In the garden, Adam failed to obey God's command so that he might live. Well, Jesus, the new and better Adam, succeeded. Jesus lived out the perfection Adam never could. Jesus earned the favor of God for everyone who would ever come to him. Jesus turns back the curse that Adam earned. So as we celebrate the birth of the Savior, i got a question for you. Do you belong to the Savior? I want you to think about this. I don't want you to flippantly answer it. I want you to really ask the God who made you, do I belong to the Savior? Am I counted under Adam, guilty and dead, or under Jesus, forgiven and alive? Ask that because it really matters. There's a choice to make. We're not going to talk about the sovereign working of God behind that choice right now. That really isn't the factor in front of you. There's a choice to make. You can try to be the master of your own life or you can run to Jesus for mercy. If you try to run and rule your own life, doing things your way, you will be judged as guilty of sin, just like Adam, failing to fulfill the perfection of God. And the consequence for that failure is eternal and it's horrible. But God has brought grace. God sent the Savior. And Jesus, that Savior, is who we celebrate at Christmas. He offers eternal life and forgiveness for all who will come to Him. 
Trust in Jesus. And God will count you as in Christ and not in Adam. Trust in Jesus and God counts Jesus' perfection to your account and counts your sins forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. This Christmas Day, as we celebrate the Savior, please be sure that your soul rests safe in the care of God the Son, God with us, Jesus our Savior. Let's bow together and pray, friends. God, I'm again thankful for all you've done. I'm again conscious of my inadequacy to genuinely, deeply, profoundly communicate what you've done. This message is bigger than any one sermon. It's bigger than any one worship service. And I'm just so grateful that you let us gather to think about it today in a time when so many of us, it could be so easy to be focused on good stuff. We like family time. We like gifts. We like food. But oh dear God, we cannot do better than focusing on Jesus. I know, God, there are people here who don't know you. I pray, Lord, right now you would sovereignly break their hearts and draw them to you and help them be under the grace of the Savior. And I know, Lord, there are those who know you, but maybe they're fighting with you. I pray you will break their hearts, bring them to repentance, and help them be under the Savior. And I know, God, there are those who are hurting. Life has not gone the way they wanted it to. They've suffered, they've been abused, they've been hurt, they've been... Just nothing's gone the way that they want. This world feels so empty. Help them hope in the fact that they are under the king of kings, the good king, the king worth following, the king who will come, the king who rules now, the king who will rule forever, and the king who will set everything right. Lord, there are some who are just having a great day. Give them joy in Jesus. That's our prayer in our Savior's holy name. Amen.